Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The first quarter earnings season is almost complete, and now feels like a good time to take stock and drill into the results. The S&P 500 has fallen to the brink of a bear market, with companies severely punished for missing their earnings forecasts. The question everyone is asking is, what comes next? I want to know the trends driving company performance, which sectors are weathering the storm, and if the market has now reached its elusive fair value. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, why do people still reference the Dow Jones Industrial Index? Okay, let's get into it. So as you must be aware, it's a turbulent time in markets, with the S&P 500 on the verge of a bear market and big moves in major stocks. As we've moved through earnings season, we've seen pretty good results, actually, with a few exceptions. But Roman, I guess the question to start off with is, why do we even really care about earnings season? Yeah, you could say it's something which happens regularly. So it's easy to kind of discount it and say, I care about macroeconomics or I care about other drivers. But the fact is that the engine of growth for any stock market index is ultimately profits. Sometimes you get euphoria, so people are willing to pay more for them or depressions, Mr. Market pays you less for them. But overall, if you look at the long-term trend, it's not a coincidence that the growth in earnings matches very closely the growth in prices. And I suppose we should be clear here that by earnings, we mean profits. Some people get confused about that. Yeah, so this is the bottom line. So again, just to clarify, think of the money entering a company's coffers as kind of like a waterfall. So the top of the waterfall is the kind of revenue, that's the sales that they generate. And then bits of the waterfall are siphoned off as you pay for your taxes, you pay your staff, you pay costs of goods sold, and eventually you end up with a little trickle or perhaps a big stream. It really depends on the company, which is the profit. So that's the important thing which we really care about. And those earnings are crucial when we're talking about the P-E ratio, the price to earnings ratio, which we often refer to as a gauge of whether the market is looking expensive or cheap. I mean, it hasn't really looked cheap in a while, but... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, some companies, I mean, the ratios that you can use look at the price relative to various bits of that waterfall. So if it's an unprofitable company, you know, like a new tech company that is kind of pre-profit, You might compare price to sales, which is the amount of money that's actually flowing into the company because they haven't got any profits, you know, once you subtract the costs. They're coming. They're going to come eventually. (laughs) Yes, I'd pay 100 times sales for that. So anyway, look, the, the point is that the reason why we focus on profits is because eventually you might have a claim on that. So some of those profits might be paid to you in the form of a dividend. So that's called the dividend payout ratio, how much of the profit is paid to the shareholders. And it's a way to reinvest in the company without raising new capital. Yeah, I think that's really important. You can organically grow your company if you have lots of profits, or as many tech companies have been doing in the United States, buy back your shares. So effectively, you concentrate the holdings of your existing shareholders. So that's another way in which US companies in particular have actually been growing their share price. That's been a big driver of US share price growth, in fact, over the last decade or so. And they've only been able to do that because they've been throwing off so much cash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the cash juggernauts like Apple and Microsoft, for example, which have been able to buy back their own shares. And it's for a good reason, right? So I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. It used to be seen as stock price manipulation, but suddenly people realised 
that it wasn't. But still, I think as long as they're buying back shares for a good reason and they're not buying back shares when prices are really elevated, I think that's a problem. But still, for now, we're still seeing buybacks happening. OK, so maybe let's drill into the earnings season in a bit of detail now. Now, you might think, oh, the market's fallen almost 20%. That must mean earnings were terrible. But really, that hasn't been the case. So for the S&P 500, 77% of companies that have reported so far, and almost all companies have, their earnings per share were above estimates. Yeah, I think if, it's funny. If you read these fact set documents, for example, or other analyses of earnings, people always talk about, has it beaten expectations or has it disappointed? Because really, when a stock reports its earnings, it'll always be compared to what the analysts were estimating. Now, this is a bit of a cat and mouse game. I think this is often not helpful because, so how do the analysts come up with their estimates? Well, they'll have models which, you know, predict the cash flows, look at the sector, they'll talk to management and try and gauge, you know, how optimistic they are. But ultimately, it's a guess, right? It's a guess as to where headline numbers are going to be. So turnover and then the bottom line, what's the profit going to be? What's the earnings going to be? But it is a guess. And there's also a kind of guidance which is provided by the companies themselves. So think of it from the company's point of view. Are you going to try and set your guidance really high so that the analysts will come up with a very high estimate, which you'll have trouble beating, where you could get punished for your underperformance? And your bonus may be related to the share price, so you probably don't want to do that. Or will you revise it down a little bit so that it's actually quite easy to beat? So the whole kind of game is pointless. Yeah. Set a low bar and jump over it with flying colours. Yeah. And, and you know, if there's bad news, they kitchen sink. So let's say that there is some kind of write down and it's going to be an awful quarter. Well, they'll just bring forward all the bad stuff and kitchen sink it into this quarter. So there is a lot of kind of playing around and gaming the system. So I think these beats and misses are not particularly helpful. Okay, so what is more useful then? Because on the face of it, earnings have grown around 9.1% this quarter, which is pretty steady. Yes, it is steady and it's not huge. So it's okay, but it's not amazing. So just before the pandemic, just to put this in context, we had about four quarters when there wasn't any growth in the S&P's earnings at all. It was flat. So it was 2019. Yeah, so this was 2019. And the fourth quarter of 2019 was when I sold some of my equity. Actually, it was the beginning of 2020. You timed the market, wrong. I did time <laughs> So naughty. <laughs> I just thought, you know, this is crazy. You know, stocks were just going up and up and, you know, it seemed to make no sense. Of course, I didn't buy at the bottom in March 2020. So, you know, I can't claim any special insight. So always the problem. You've got to be right twice. Yeah. You only did it once. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I got half of it right, but I'm ready this time. But I think, you know, after that, what we saw was an earnings recession, which is when earnings fell very sharply, so that in Q2 of 2020, they actually fell year on year by 32%. And then whenever there's one of these collapses, there's a surge that follows. So in Q2 of 2021, it went up by 87%. 87%. I mean, you never see that. Well, we did see it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but only if you shock the system, yeah? So you get a collapse, a surge, and then we had two more quarters of huge growth. So 37%, then 31%. And now we've just got to the first kind of normal quarter. Yeah, so now the sort of 10% seems like kind of a bit disappointing because we've just got <laughs> 80 odd percents. 
And this was all my always my worry for 2022, which is that earnings would be okay, but not great. And so a lot of this euphoria that was baked into markets would start to dissipate. And that's exactly what's happened. Another problem, I think, is that margins are still very high. So, you know, a lot of the top line revenue is making it into the, the bottom line profit. Yeah, so the net profit margin for the S&P is 12.3% in the current quarter, which is above the five-year average of 11.2 and doesn't seem sustainable in a world of high inflation, right? Because there's only so much you can pass on to the customer. Yeah, so we're kind of pushing record margins for the US right now. It depends on the sector, of course. But in fact, some sectors have actually revised up their margin forecasts. So I just think that that's slightly kind of... (laughs) ignoring the very bleak reality that's in front of us, which is very high inflation, you know, above 8% in the US. And if that's the case, then companies are going to have to somehow, at least I think companies are going to struggle to actually keep their customers paying very high prices and not taking a hit themselves. Just passing on these higher input costs is not sustainable. Certainly not for consumer discretionary and those kind of things you don't necessarily need to buy. Yeah. And, you know, that would be companies like Amazon, which we saw got really badly punished. They had a pretty disastrous quarter, didn't they? Yeah, it was just, I mean, it's just been astonishing, the size of the fall. So year to date, Amazon is down about 35%. And there are other retailers which have also been hugely punished for disappointing in terms of what they said during their earnings calls. So Walmart down about 18%, Costco down about 26, 27%. And Target, which is another kind of retail store in the US, down by about 30%. I mean, those are huge moves for big companies. You don't see that very often. Yeah, I mean, this was literally a couple of days move. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I read that Target hadn't fallen like that since I think it was 1987, the one day crash. So Target and Walmart fell by more than they've fallen since that 1987 crash, both of them. And so, so that's pretty shocking. You don't usually see that. I mean, the story behind it, I mean, a lot of the media kind of reported it as, oh, consumers are spending less, so they've got less revenue. But that wasn't the case. These retailers posted really good revenue, but their margins had been squeezed by higher costs. Yeah, yeah. So, for example, the CEO of Target said we were less profitable than we expected to be or intended to be over time. Looking ahead, it's clear that many of these cost pressures will persist in the near term. So it is due to things like logistics. It's costing more to ship stuff around due to higher fuel prices. There are still supply chain disruptions. And, you know, the indirect effect of the Ukraine war is going to be things like higher fertilizer costs because they produce a lot of the things which go into fertilizer, such as potash, urea, but also the fertilizer itself. And that's going to push up agriculture prices. I mean, it's interesting that 74% of S&P 500 companies cited the supply chain on their earnings calls. So, you know, three quarters of companies are saying the supply chain is causing us a big problem right now. It was funny. I I originally thought that some poor junior was going to have to transcribe each of these earnings calls, but it's obviously automated now. But, But I think this isn't the only sector that's going to be hit. You know, expecting margins to fall just in retail or just in customer facing sectors is unrealistic. Yeah, because the other squeeze on cost is coming from cost of labour going up. Yeah, and that's what the Fed is trying to stop, of course, because we've got a very tight labour market in the United States, two jobs for every person that's unemployed, roughly. And that means that people have a fairly strong negotiating position when it comes to wages. 
And that affects all sectors, really. Yeah, particularly the ones which usually have very high margins, like software or perhaps financial services or any kind of service, white-collar type industry, which covers a lot of the US in, in terms of growth. And it's interesting you mentioned the sectors. So we said that overall earnings growth was 9.1%, but that really isn't evenly distributed. So energy massively outperformed. And if you excluded energy, then that 9.1% comes down to just 3.1% earnings growth. If you look at the sector performance, since markets kind of turned in November last year, then energy is up about 44%. You know, it's the blistering performance that we haven't seen in any other sector The only thing which is close is utilities, which is a kind of boring defensive sector. It's a non-cyclical sector. And all of that energy price rise is driven by the higher cost or the higher value of oil and gas, right? Yeah, it's it's oil prices and gas prices, which has driven the profitability of the sector. And if you go from effectively zero or slightly negative prices in the futures market to over $100 per barrel, yeah, that's going to have a huge effect on the sector. I mean, the energy sector reported year-on-year earnings growth of 268%. <laughs> it's like sort of the graph I saw, it's off the graph. <laughs> you can't even see the top of the bar. But, but that's why I think it's important to understand earnings, because if you look at what sectors or stocks are doing, and you're asking the question, why did the price do what it did? The first port of call should be profits and earnings, because you know that's ultimately what drives fundamental growth of prices. And this is why I love equity, because there is this kind of rational pricing. But then if we look at the other sectors, the one which is actually done worst is consumer discretionary. So that's now down 31%. So that would be kind of luxury items. So what would be your luxury item, Michael? Uh, Take your time. I don't really buy anything. <laughs> you don't buy anything? No, I don't buy things. Okay, so standard consumer discretionary would be... Let me think of something to say to your question. <laughs> the new Manchester United jersey. Okay, not absolutely essential. Certainly not with our performance this season. And if inflation was very high, these are the kind of purchases which you might actually put aside which obviously hurts the profits of those companies. So I think that's kind of understandable. And then if we look at the next worst performing, it's communication services. That's down by about 27%. Yeah, so these are the price declines in the stock, but that is mirrored in the earnings decline. So there's two sectors which actually reported a decline in year-on-year earnings, and that is consumer discretionary and financials, actually. Yeah, so financials down 16% year-on-year. So they're very cyclical. If there's economic growth and a boom, financials and banks that would also include things like insurance companies they do very well and in a downturn when people are expecting a recession or there's actually a recession those would be the sectors that would perform worst but it is interesting that people said rising interest rates were going to help banks profit margins that doesn't seem to have played out at least not yet well there's a kind of tug of war if there's less growth then there's less demand for borrowing so the lending business isn't as strong And also, if there's less economic activity, then there'll be less income from things like share issuance or the other kind of financial plumbing from people doing stuff. So that's why I think financials will also suffer during an economic downturn, which is what many people are now expecting. And going back to consumer discretionary, what's interesting in that sector for me is just how dominant Amazon is. So the sector as a whole declined by 33% in terms of earnings, whereas if you stripped Amazon out, it would have actually grown by 3%. So it's a huge part of that consumer discretionary sector. So if you haven't tried it, have a look at a website called Finviz. What this does is it has a nice little blocky heat map which shows you the size of each of the companies within each of the sectors in the S&P 500. 
So, for example, there's a massive block for technology because, you know, that's the biggest sector in the S&P 500 at the moment. And Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, they all make up a huge proportion of the area for the S&P 500. And of course, Apple's down about 20% year to date, Microsoft 23, Google 23, Amazon 35, and Tesla's down 36. So you can very clearly see that sea of red. The only sector which looks bright green is energy. So Exxon up 53%. And that's really clear when you look at this heat map. And I think when we talk about technology companies, it's important to remember that those ones you've mentioned aren't all in the technology sector, weirdly. So Amazon is a consumer discretionary company and Google is communication services. So they're even more dominant when we talk about sectors because they're in this slightly smaller pool. Yes, yeah, so Amazon is just huge in consumer cyclical. The second biggest is Tesla. And then within communications, as you say, you've got Google, which is huge, Facebook, which really isn't anymore, and Disney, you know, so it's got subcategories within each sector, of course. And the other thing to look at is the PE ratio, price to earnings ratio, does vary quite a lot between different sectors. So energy is still around 10% as a forward price to earnings ratio, whereas consumer discretionary is still up over 20% as a price to earnings ratio. So there's a big variance. Yeah, that's right. So sometimes within a particular sector, people are willing to pay much more for every dollar of profit. So usually when you do these price to earnings comparisons, you'd compare it with the same sector because, you know, that's what really matters. And the same is true of margins. So for example, if you look at margins in real estate, you're looking at what, 35%. Whereas if you look at consumer staples, it's much, much lower because there's a lot of competition. Usually these are cheaper items, which they sell. So there the margins would be around, I don't know, 7%. Yeah. And I think in the UK, the big supermarkets operate on sort of maybe 3% as a profit margin. Yeah, I think some of them. Yeah, that's right. And they have to, right? Because there's so much competition in the sector. So if one of them lowers prices, they'll make a big deal about it in their marketing, and the other ones are forced to follow suit. Whereas in information technology, you know, the margins are huge, you know, it's just under 25%. So I I think it's really important to understand that whenever you're looking at price to earnings multiples, if you are going to look at single stocks, which I never do, of course, then you have to compare it with the sector. Otherwise, it kind of makes no sense. And I suppose the growthier sectors are rewarded with a higher price to earnings ratio. Yeah, because people look forwards and they're willing to pay more for future growth. That's typically been the case for tech. Of course, now that story's <laughs> changed quite a lot because we have seen a big normalisation of, uh, of those forward valuations. And if we look at the market as a whole, obviously we have seen that price to earnings ratio come down quite a bit now. Would you say the market is a fair value, Roman? Well, certainly by some measures. And, you know, if you look at the forward PE, it's below the five-year average, it's below the 10-year average. And, you know, we're almost in a bear market for the S&P 500 as we make this podcast. And is it at fair value? It's certainly closer to it. The long-term average is about 15 times, and that's over a 60-year period. And we're just a little bit above that. So fair value, yes. Cheap, not yet. To be cheap, you'd have to go below the fair value estimate. So, you know, we're certainly at fair value for what is now forecast to be the profits for the S&P 500. The problem is that if the analysts are too optimistic, too bullish, then they might actually start revising down those forecast earnings. So another thing which you can look at is something like the CAPE measure which is backward looking, and that one's still looking expensive. 
And you mentioned forecasts. So 62 companies have issued negative earnings per share guidance and 26 positive. So that does seem to be skewed to the downside. Yeah, so they are starting to revise down now. If we look at the Shiller PE, for example, that's currently at 31. So certainly not cheap. What's Shiller PE? Is this the CAPE ratio? So this is the CAPE ratio, which is the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio, where you take the price today and divide by the previous 10 years of profits or earnings. And this is supposed to kind of smooth out the business cycles and spot bubbles. And currently that's still very elevated. You know, it's roughly the same level as it was on Black Tuesday, which is when we got the massive crash in 1930. So it is weird. We're kind of getting different signals from these valuation measures, which I guess is kind of always the case, right? They're never all going to agree. Yeah. But if you do look at things like the excess Cape yield, which takes interest rates into account, in fact, the S&P is looking quite expensive at the moment because interest rates, real interest rates, where you subtract the rate of inflation, have actually surged upwards so far this year. And so if you look at where the valuation should be in comparison to history, relative to those real rates, US equity hasn't sold off enough. You know, this was a justification for high valuations when interest rates were low. But I've, one thing I've noticed is that now that real rates have risen, nobody's talking about it anymore because it's making stocks look expensive. And nobody wants to be kind of miserable, right? <laughs> so it really depends on the valuation measure you use. And there's a whole bunch you can look at. But certainly, I think it's fair to say that if you invest now, you're going to get higher returns. Because remember that it's not a question of if equity is going to go back to previous all-time highs. It's a question of when. So any money you invest now will just generate a return. But the longer it takes to get back to the previous all-time high, the less the annualised return will be. Yeah, and you might have to stomach a pretty massive crash in the meantime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's just the price you pay for equity, right? If you're cautious, you're never going to get the upside, which is massive. So I think, I think as long as you're willing to stomach the volatility, now is a very good time, or at least much better time than it was when clearly markets were euphoric. But have we really capitulated yet? Mm, not sure. And the other thing is the market does seem quite volatile. Like we said, we've got these big moves in stocks with big market capitalizations, which is quite rare. But the VIX, which a lot of people use as a kind of fear gauge in a way, has not spiked as much as you might expect. Yeah, so this is what we'd call a very orderly sell-off, right? There's not been a huge crash in a single day. We did have a bit of a wobble last week. They called it Wacky Wednesday, I think. When there was a big fall for the S&P, the Nasdaq was down about 5%. But still, nothing huge like we got during the 1987 crash, where there was a synchronised massive fall across many different sectors, stocks, and just a huge pullback of risk appetite. It was like a 20 plus percent fall in a day, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, and we were talking about like a you know multiple sigma event, which is a nerd's way of saying it's very unlikely. So <laughs> it's funny because because we had this guy at the bank who was creating this index of you could call it economic distress and we just kept on seeing it head further and further down so you know initially it was a two sigma event and he wrote about it then it was a three sigma event which should only happen you know some like 2% of the time and then it got down to like a a 10 sigma event, which should never happen if it's a Gaussian distribution. Never happen in the history of the universe. You like Gaussians, don't you, Michael? We're not doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Gaussians. Put your sombrero away. We're not talking about yeah, it. <laughs> okay. So anyway, it was very unlikely. But I think what we haven't seen yet is that kind of synchronized huge fall. 
And that's what makes the VIX spike. And what could cause that? What are we waiting for? Well, usually it's some kind of accident. You know, when markets do fall, what sometimes happens is that accounting scandals come to light and companies which have used too much leverage come unstuck because of the margin calls. And then you get this kind of perpetuating spiral where people are selling stuff which they can sell. And usually that's the liquid stuff. And then you get contagion across markets. So, you know, if there is a hedge fund that has to liquidate, it'll sell its good stuff because it can't sell the toxic stuff because it's illiquid. So that's not really happened yet. We haven't seen a huge wave of margin calls and redemptions and huge swathes of people pulling their money out of risky assets. Although it's, you know, it's starting to happen, but I think it would take a triggering event. You know, the default of a big bank, which is very unlikely now because they're well capitalized, or, you know, something like WorldCom, which was a big bankruptcy in 2000, or something like Enron, you know, which came unstuck for the same reason, which was the sell-offs. Could it be caused by a mega cap just suddenly having a big drawdown in its stock price? And if there's a lot of leverage underneath it, people might have to start selling and liquidating other positions. Like I'm thinking Tesla, if Tesla fell 60% in a day or two, could that be the trigger? Yeah, or a credit event. So, you know, if companies have got a lot of leverage, then they could default. You know, it could be the case that they haven't got enough money to service the debt. And we could see a big credit event, which would shock people because we haven't seen credit events for a long time now. You could literally count it on the fingers of one hand. If a default occurs, it's quite unusual. So if that starts to kick off, then, you know, we'll get this whole downgrade cascade thing, which we've talked about before. So I think there are certain things which could happen. There could be a geopolitical thing. You know, it could be use of tactical nuclear weapons in Europe. These things are always impossible to predict. You know, maybe monkeypox is going to be the thing. Oh, God, I hope not. At least with COVID, there was no sort of external signal. I don't want to be covered in all that stuff. <laughs> so you're not going to go to a monkeypox party just to kind of get it out of the way. I saw someone on Twitter say that. Well, we were at the park the other day with my daughter and I saw a kid going past with like chickenpox. And I, you've never seen me move so fast to pick, pick her up and just run. I picked her up like a little rugby ball and just sprinted. <laughs> it's funny because in America, they uh, really are scared of chickenpox. Whereas in the UK, we're quite blasé about the whole thing. You know, we do have chickenpox parties for kids. I knew people who did that. No longer recommended though. No. But coming back to the potential crises, I think the triggering events usually would be something that would affect earnings. So if there's a huge increase in credit spreads, that's going to trigger some defaults. If interest rates keep rising, that's going to be a problem for companies which are trying to roll over their debt. And there are lots of zombies out there in the S&P 500 who could finally topple. I mean, that's the thing. There could be this big event which causes a big sell-off, or we could just keep taking the stairs slowly downwards, couldn't we? I mean, the macro trends are not really favourable for companies in the S&P. So you've got a stronger dollar, commodity prices are still really high, supply chain problems everywhere, high inflation, and consumer sentiment now is dreadful. Yeah, the thing that really worries me at the moment is what's happening in China, because if they are trying to have the zero COVID policy, then that's going to be a drag on, you know, the entire area, the, the entire region. So, for example, Australia is very heavily dependent on Chinese imports of its stuff. You know, it's been selling its dirt to China, its iron ore and its industrial metals for a long time now. And that's created a huge boom economically for Australia. And of course, that's one of the most highly leveraged property markets on the planet. 
if I ever speak to an Australian client, you know, they're, they're saying, well, I know property is the best thing, but could you tell me about stocks? <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, they don't even have things like an ISA, which we do in the UK. So you can buy stocks in a kind of tax wrapper. They're completely focused on things which allow them to structure property purchases tax efficiently. I'm no expert on Australian property, but it seems like a massive country with not many people. Just build some houses, right? <laughs> it's not like the UK where we haven't got much space. So we can cross off Australia from our listeners' list now. That's very good. <laughs> Which English-speaking country haven't we slagged off yet? Canada? No, I've done Canada. So it's also very expensive in terms of price-to-income ratios. So, you know, I think a lot of these countries where there's a very leveraged property market and there's been a huge euphoria in that market... You know, I think that will cause problems. And then there's a question of the banks which have funded the mortgages, perhaps at too high a leverage ratio. You know, maybe they took too much risk with their lending book. So that could be a problem. And I think this is all based on what's going on in China. And if China does stop having such strong economic activity, that's going to ripple through the entire region. And funnily enough, the UK has actually got quite a lot of exposure to Chinese growth via banks particularly HSBC. So that's probably the route of contagion back to the UK. But, you know, there are probably other routes which we just don't even know about until the crisis hits. If Chinese growth did slow down, though, would that not cool the global inflation because they're such a major source of demand for raw materials? I think in some places, yes. So, for example, oil, one of the reasons why its price hasn't continued surging, some people say, is because of reduced Chinese demand. And, you know, they are a big importer of oil. They can buy it from Russia at the moment for pretty reduced prices, I guess. But you're right. I think, you know, the commodity surge, which we saw, may soften due to the impact of uh, a China kind of slowdown. But I think what's really bad is if some of these industries, which are making the assumption that exports to China would be strong, suddenly have to revise those assumptions or they just kind of see their earnings slump. I think that's going to be the problem. If there's too much China exposure, then we could see some accidents. So coming back to your original question, I think what's going to trigger a sell-off, a big vol event, you know, what will cause Volmageddon is, <laughs> I think, is likely to be something like one of these accidents. They're not predictable, but the best place to look for where they might happen is pockets of leverage. So the leveraged loan markets in the US, the huge amount of triple B companies, and these property markets, which are leveraged to the hilt and could see downturns. Do you think that bonds would hedge equity in that event of a mass shock? Because usually, historically, we'd say, yes, if you're in bonds, then you'd sort of be counterbalanced. But that hasn't proved the case this year so far. Well, it's interesting. If you look at the correlation between bonds and equity, the times when it actually goes positive is when inflation is very high. And guess what? Inflation was very high this year. So they fell together. Yeah, exactly. But now I think we've reached a level where yields have increased a lot. And I suspect that we haven't got a lot further to go. I mean, I never make forecasts, right? Because it's a fool's errand. But I think a lot of the sell-off is now complete. In the bond market, you mean? The government bond market? Yeah, yeah. And, and if you do get a massive sell-off in equity, a very big shock, you know, big vol driver, then that's when bonds really come into their own. Because when people are scared, when push comes to shove, you buy Uncle Sam's debt. You know, you're not going to buy cryptocurrency if you're scared, right? You're going to buy what's safe and what's backed by the Fed. So I think there's no question that they'd be a good hedge if that happened. 
So they're the shock absorber of choice for you? Well, for me, I think, yeah, I think that's what I'd choose. And, you know, that's why I've got them in my portfolio, because, you know, they've killed me this this year. But I think if there was a massive shock, then I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if they regained their losses. So we've told a pretty negative story, but that's maybe unfair. Like what could cause the upside from here? Because it's by no means certain that we're going to keep going down, is it? No, I think that's why markets are interesting, because (laughs) you never know what's going to happen. And people have opinions and then they look like idiots, which is just great. (laughs) But something that could cause a surge upwards, for example, if it's inflation just starts coming down. You know, what happens if inflation does come down quite rapidly and all the things which caused it to surge upwards, suddenly all those factors go away. So there's a ceasefire between Russia and Ukraine. China manages to get its COVID situation under control and returns to normal activity and the supply chains normalise, demand falls, and then suddenly we'll be facing deflation rather than inflation. Uh, So, you know, I think that would probably cause another melt-up. Is that going to happen? It's difficult to know, but there could be synchronised events which cause this situation to reverse very quickly. I mean, for those of us who are still adding money to the market, we kind of want to put it in while the valuations are low, but there's always that thought of, are they going to go lower? Do I just wait a little bit more? And then if you wait too long, you miss it. And this was my experience from 2020 when, you know, I just held money back because I thought it was going to go down to Lehman type levels. You say never hold money back from the market, Roman. I know, I know. <laughs> Don't do what I do, do what I say. <laughs> Look, I'm learning like everyone else. I think that's the important thing to understand. If anyone says that they know everything, I'd really question it you know but the other thing is you know sometimes we know what the right thing is statistically and based on historical precedent but it just feels wrong and scary to do it but my core portfolio i'm doing exactly that the thing is with the stock market it never really seems cheap like never like because if it is cheap in retrospect it's because it looked like the world was going to end like it got down to an eight times multiple on the p ratio in 2008 or 9 or whenever it was because it looked like the whole system might collapse and it kind of turns around before you realize that the world is going to recover so i think the stock market bottomed in was it march 2009 that's right when everything still looked really really scary and it was sort of started to rise up and everyone thought oh it's just another bear market rally is coming down even further after this but then just kept going up and that's why this time what i'm doing for my core portfolio is drip feeding and I'll probably accelerate it now. I think I'm going to actually start increasing my monthly purchases so that I get to my final allocation much more quickly. And I think if we went down below a 15 times multiple, you know, for the forward P, that's the point at which I'd probably increase the purchases really rapidly. Just go all in at that point. Maybe, you know, maybe not. But <laughs> Come on, Robin. <laughs> maybe, you know, I, I talk about it though. I, I talk about it on the, on the YouTube channel and on here. But at the moment, I think, you know, we've still got a little bit of wobbly and slightly fragile markets to go. I mean, I think you're right that it doesn't feel like capitulation yet. Everyone seems to just be thinking, oh, when am I going to pile back in? Rather than thinking, I am not buying any stocks for a long time. And Kathy Wood inflows. So you know, <laughs> I think those people still haven't given up. But it's true here, right? We're talking about, oh, when are we going to accelerate our purchases? When are we going to get into the market even more? We're not talking about, oh my God, let's run for the safety of bonds. Yeah, not yet. But although I am thinking about bonds for my fund portfolio right now, because I think, you know, that could be an interesting thing. Bonds are never fun, Roman. <laughs> <laughs> I love bonds. I think they're great. But it's interesting, if you look at the bond returns for this year, TLT, which is Long Duration Treasuries Fund, is down 20%. I mean, it's unbelievable how much it's lost. That's in line with the S&P fall, more or less. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty shocking. And SHY, the short duration one, is down 3%, which doesn't sound shocking. 
But for SHY, which is essentially cash, it's like a stable coin falling. Unthinkable. And we're being generous here because this is all in nominal terms. You do it in real terms and it looks even more painful. Oh, it's atrocious. Yeah. It does feel like the stock market is maybe in a bit of a rotation at the move away from growth towards value. So, Robin, which factors have performed best or worst, do you think, in this year? So let's just step back a moment. What is a factor? Well, it's a kind of style of investing. So, for example, you could go for cheap stocks. That would be a value factor. You could go for stocks which are trending upwards. That's a momentum factor. Or you could go for things like growth stocks, which are companies which are aggressively growing their earnings, usually small tech stocks. And in terms of a factor rotation, you know, over a decade, we saw these tech mega caps like Google, Amazon, Apple, really dominating markets and doing incredibly well. So that was large cap growth, it's called. So you can combine these factors, you know, small cap, large cap, combined with value or growth. So small cap value, large cap growth. And in terms of the performance this year, the best performing factor is high dividend yield. So there's a fund from Vanguard called VYM, and that's only fallen by about 1% so far this year. Yeah, that's the best performance. It's not so, a story, so is the it? smallest loss. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but look, I mean, that's a, that's a win in these markets. Definitely, it is a win if you're an investor right now. And then the second best is large cap value. So these would be, a lot of energy companies would be in that sector because they were yeah. cheap going into this. And now they're not so cheap, but still relatively cheap. And, then, and even dividend yield is a measure of value because it's dividends paid divided by the price today. And then we got the kind of really boring approach, which is minimum volatility, where you choose stocks which have very little price fluctuation. So a lot of utilities, a lot of companies with very steady earnings growth, uh, like Walmart. Okay. Minimum volatility is done very well. Well, not lost so much. But then we go way down the table and we get to things like anything to do with growth or momentum. For example, the US Momentum Fund, MTUM, rebalances every six months. And of course, the big rotation happened at the beginning of this year, and it was caught wrong-footed because it's only just rebalancing right now. Yeah, six months is a long time. It turned around quickly, <laughs> didn't it? And it's just rebalancing now. So I think the uh, momentum strategy has now sold a load of tech and bought a load of energy. So guess what's going to happen? <laughs> Re-rotation. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, you know, really, it's a matter of luck whether momentum rebalances frequently enough. And of course, if it rebalances more, that increases the management fee because it has to churn more. And that churn comes at a cost, which is passed on to you as a, as a management fee. Yeah, momentum only really would do well when there's a long trend. As there has been for the last decade. So I think, you know, momentum is great until the trend ends. And it's atrocious if you get a trend which is whipsawing back and forth. Yeah, that's the worst possible scenario for momentum. And I suspect we might be in such a scenario right now. You know, we've seen value perform very well year to date, but I'm not sure that's going to persist. But still, we'll have to wait and see. But generally, the worst performing funds would be growth funds. So, for example, IWF, which is a growth fund, that's down by about 24%. I mean, small crap, small cap growth <laughs> is down... Hugely. Small crap, yeah. <laughs> Don't say that. You're going, to, you're going to say that again? No, I'll keep it in. <laughs> okay, so small crap. Yes, that's down by about 24%. 
don't know what you're reading. It's 32.7. That's small cap growth. That's what I said. Okay, small crap growth. Yep, 33%. <laughs> so, you know, if you combine factors, the worst possible combo would have been small cap and growth. I can see something on the chart that's even worse, Roman. Oh, yes. So the worst performing style, I'd say, is IPOs. So these are newly issued stocks, which have just listed on the stock exchange. And guess what kind of companies those were? Yes, it's things like Zoom or other kind of techie growth stocks. They're like hyper small growth companies, right? Yeah. And those did incredibly well in 2020. And then, you know, there's just been an apocalypse for any kind of tech growth company. But didn't the companies basically see how euphoric the market was and how much money was sloshing around and then just rushed to issue their IPO and just sort of capitalise when everyone was willing to give them a ridiculous price? Which in retrospect was a very clever thing to do. So when do you want to list? When there's euphoria. So there won't be so many IPOs going forward. Yeah, we've seen the number of deals dry up a lot. So that's another reason why the banks haven't been doing very well, because, you know, they get 1% of any capital which is raised, roughly. It's interesting that I read last year, actually, that when you see a pickup in the rate of IPOs, that's a pretty strong signal that we're at the end of a bull market, and it might be time to sort of tone down your risk. And so it's proved. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one. Of course, timing signals, there isn't really a reliable one, but that's certainly something you'd expect to see. And then private equity, which supposedly has real assets in many cases, or at least has recession-proof investments. At least that's the way it's sold, I think. That's down by about 33%. So that's the second worst. And how about if we choose really good active managers, you know, the creme de la creme, who manage hedge funds? Oh, no. So Guru, which mimics many of their favourite funds. <laughs> is that the ticker, Guru? <laughs> Guru is the name of the ticker, which I think is great. You couldn't fit charlatan on a ticker, could you? Oh, very good. <laughs> so that's down 31%. So all of these things, which supposedly, you know, should outperform in a falling market, simply haven't. Yeah, it's kind of come back to fundamentals, hasn't it? You wanted to be in value stocks. It's Warren Buffett's time again. It's kind of back to doing the homework and working out which stocks are actually good fundamentally. It's probably a return to a long-term trend, at least what'll grow, what'll work for the long term. Going to be grounded again. Ultimately, it always is, right? This is why mean reversion is such a powerful way of looking at markets, because, you know, ultimately it does revert. It's never a pleasant process, though. It's interesting we talk about grounded and growth. I mean, did you see someone called you the Charlie Dimmock of finance <laughs> in an iTunes review? <laughs> I wasn't sure exactly what that meant. I mean, it's a five-star review, so I presume it's a compliment. <laughs> if you're not from the UK, Charlie Dimmock is kind of a sort of a celebrity gardener and unlikely sex symbol, which is kind of you, Roman, right? That's your USP as well now. <laughs> I do like gardening. I'm not sure about the second one, but someone suggested I use Vaseline when I was when I was actually doing the videos. Sorry? I know. What? If you look on my Twitter feed, you'll see somebody said Vaseline for what? They said amazing video, but you should use Vaseline. And I was I was kind of flummoxed by that. Apparently it's because I have a flaky face. Flaky face, okay. Yeah. I think. At least that's what I assume. <laughs> I just blocked them. <laughs> <laughs> and I thanked them, you know. <laughs> Thanks for the tip. Now, as the earnings season progresses, we often talk about it on our Slack channel on Pensioncraft. So if you want to become part of the discussion, why not join us in our membership on pensioncraft.com? Okay, so today's dumb question of the week is 
Why do people and the media still refer so much to the Dow Jones Industrial Average? Is it not a bit rubbish as an index? It's atrocious. <laughs> right. And in fact, you know, I'd block anyone on Twitter that even mentions it unless they're being ironic. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so don't get on Bromin's bad side, everyone. <laughs> you know, there's not much that makes me angry, but that, that's certainly an index which does. I mean, it's price weighted, right? So that makes absolutely no sense. What's price weighted? So if you want to work out an index, how could you do it, right? So you want to create a weighting for each of the stocks in the index. Well, some bright spark came up with the idea of saying, well, we'll look at the share price. You know, so if it's got 10 times the share price for this stock than for another, it'll have 10 times the weight in the index. That would make sense if all stocks were sort of benchmarked at 100 or something, like bonds, but they're not. But the thing is, if you've got a stock which has just risen and risen which has been around a long time, by definition, it's going to have a bigger weighting in that index, which makes no sense. And if there's a stock split, so for example, when Apple split in 2020, its weighting went from 12% in the Dow down to 3%. So, you know, why? I mean, was it a worse company? (laughs) You know, is that why the price went down? No, it made absolutely no material difference to the quality of the company, but the value of the index presumably would have been adjusted because they have to have this kind of fudge factor, don't they? Yeah, the Dow divisor is what I read about, which is kind of a like Einstein's constant to solve their crapness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we used to love this in physics. It's, we used to call it a fudge factor. But the idea is that if there is a stock split, you kind of adjust the index so that it kind of doesn't have a discontinuity. So this is being changed all the time to reflect the constituents of the Dow. But what's really annoying is the Dow divisor is, I don't know, naught point something. It's a lower than one. So it's a multiplier. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> so it's now a leveraged index. Yeah. No, but it just doesn't make sense. It's called the Dow divisor. Anyway, there's so much to hate about the Dow. And it doesn't have many stocks in it, right? It has a very few stocks. It just has 30 stocks in it. So it's not diversified. It doesn't reflect the whole US market in any meaningful way. I mean, they did do their best at S&P Dow Jones indices to try and make it representative of the US market. But still, it's just a huge anachronism. I mean, the price weighted thing is the big thing, isn't it? If that company with a high stock price goes up by a dollar, if your stock price is a thousand, that's not a big move, obviously. Whereas if you've got a stock price of 10 and you go up by a dollar, that's a 10% move. But in the Dow, those are both just equivalents. <laughs> it makes no sense, right? I mean, it's like I went down Amisham High Street and saw Diplodocus you know, rambling down the street. It would make me think, you know, why didn't that get wiped out in the Cretaceous tertiary extinction? And I think <laughs> this, is, this is simply an index. It shouldn't be allowed to be quoted, discussed, or even considered. But the thing is, it's been around a long time, right? That's the only reason I think that it's still, you know, listed on the ticker at the top of most financial websites. So people who watch Bloomberg TV regularly will know that there's this kind of spat between Jonathan Farrow and Tom Keane. So Tom Keane's old school, he wears a bow tie, and he often quotes a Dow. And Jonathan Farrow just goes livid when he sees him do that. So the two, I think think they get on quite well, but I'm with Jonathan there. I mean, I think the thing with the Dow is it was first invented in 1896 and only had 12 stocks at the time. And it was the kind of first attempt at an index to gauge how well the stock market was performing. So it probably did a good job back then, right? Diplodocus. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, there are other indices out there which are kind of interesting. I mean, the DAX, for example, is a total return index, which a lot of people don't know. So it actually looks at the reinvested dividends of the stocks in it, which I think is actually quite cool. I think all indices should be that way. Yeah, I think the S&P 500 should do that. I wish there was an S&P index, which was total return, because that's what really matters to investors. But I think the way the US market works, because the way they're taxed, you know, they don't really need a total return index. But certainly for the UK, you know, we have accumulation funds where having an index with lots of history that shows total return would be great. We always identify these gaps in the market and then are too lazy and poor to actually fill them ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully one day someone will listen to us and then uh, they'll do something about it. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. If you've enjoyed the show, it'd be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on your podcast platform. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.